You're listening to Poor Man's History. Let's start off with a little Emily Post's etiquette. Please. I don't know if we've done anything about representing America abroad. So I'm an American and I'm going abroad. Very good idea right now. Right. To Milan. So this is how you want to present your enthusiasm. (laughs) You will make yourself thoroughly popular in every part of the world if you show appreciation and enthusiasm for the customs and sights of the country you are in. Of course, there will be annoyances. Service in many places is less than efficient than what we are accustomed. The food may not appeal to you, nor the climate, but it is not necessary to voice your disappointments in public. (laughs) Emily Post helpfully reminding you to always show appreciation before making it clear that this is not a book to take abroad. And don't get me wrong, it's shitty out there. It's a bunch of dirty, dirt people. So watch out, American. You need not be falsely ecstatic, but you may be politely noncommittal and attempt to find and dwell on the parts of your stay that you do enjoy, which is really not bad advice. Right. There's one other little bit here. No comparison. Don't compare everything you see with the United States. We may have taller buildings, bigger automobiles, newer supermarkets, and less poverty, but no one wishes to, quote, suffer by comparison, end quote, and it is the surest way of alienating your foreign acquaintances. More money, hotter women, wider mouth beer cans. These are things you shouldn't mention. We I definitely appreciate don't have women that your, other... your weird currency. <laughs> I appreciate I'm I'm non-committal on it. <laughs> Every country in the world has something to offer that we do not. So remember that the narratives there do not necessarily Oh. So remember that the natives there do not necessarily envy us our material wealth. They may prefer their simpler, less complicated existence. <laughs> what year is this edition? This is 1960. My favorite entries in that book are the ones that, where the real lesson is the <laughs> the stuff that's being revealed unintentionally. Yeah. Are you going first tonight, or do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. No, you go first. Okay. I am going to tell you about Tracy Lynn Hammerberg. She was born on March 7th, 1966, to Judy and Harlan in Milwaukee. Harlan Hammerberg. Harlan Hammerberg. The family moved to Sockville, Wisconsin in 1976, and that's where Tracy Hammerberg went to Port Washington High School. Do you want my WWE microphone for when you say the name Hammerberg? Hammerberg! (laughs) That really gets you at the back of the throat. According to Ozaki County Sheriff James Johnson, Hammerberg left a house where she was babysitting on December 14th, 1984, to walk to a grocery store to meet with friends. Um, there's nothing else said about that statement. and That's because we can all relate. It's one of those situations <laughs> where you think... Unless I get kidnapped and murdered, no one's going to know about this. It'll be fine. I'll go meet my friends quick. No one's going to know. 
I mean, I guess it's at midnight or I don't <laughs> I don't mean to the night of. So I guess it wasn't uh, in, okay. She leaves around. I'll get to the point where midnight 30 comes up. But when I read this story, I was like, so she was, and of course, this has nothing to do with victim blaming. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I don't mean to predict the rest of this story, but I'm guessing uh, she's maybe not available for comment on why she left. Yeah. <laughs> but it is funny to read in newspapers that she left the house where she was babysitting. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So she meets up with some friends at a grocery store. They drive to Quaid's Tavern in Port Washington. She tells the bartender she's going to a party in Grafton, Wisconsin. According to the report, Hammerberg and her friends played a beer drinking game and smoked marijuana at the party. She left to walk home around 1230 a.m. It's a full night. Yeah. That's not, uh, I thought she was popping off to the grocery store for some some gummy bears and, and like yeah a, well her friends were at the grocery 40. store and what else is weird is whatever happened with these people's kids she was babysitting because her plan was to walk home the only thing i can think is was she like maybe done babysitting and then just left from there to go to the grocery store that's possible yeah her home was 3.7 miles away along highway 33 She was found partially clothed by Dan Siraki early on Saturday, December 15th, 1984. She was raped, strangled, died of head injuries. Her body was dumped on a snowy driveway on Maple Road in Grafton. So the Ozaki County Police Department said it wasn't immediately clear if she had been killed there or if her body had been moved to that location. They also couldn't identify what had inflicted the head injuries and stated it could have been anything from, quote, a stick to a baseball bat. Okay. That gives you a, a range. <laughs> it really does. I'm going to do this like we're talking width of wood. Just stop me when... Yeah. <laughs> the object was later identified as metallic. Neighbors in the wooded area north of Grafton did not see or hear anything unusual. Two different hunters reported seeing a car speeding away from Maple Road without headlights. The investigation was led by the Ozaki County Sheriff's Office. They got support from the Wisconsin Department of Justice and the Division of Criminal Investigation. There was a behavioral analysis unit that worked to create a criminal profile of who might have done this. I've seen criminal minds. Yeah, I have not. But you tell me about it enough. It's a little hammy. It's a little hammy. The, is this the one with the goth girl? That is NCIS. Okay. I actually don't know what the hook to that one is, except that there's a goth girl. Criminal yeah. Minds is, yeah, profilers where they take their clues and they tell you exactly who the person is, like their age and their hobbies because they, prof you know, like criminal. And do profiler. they get it correct? Yeah, like every time. They're best of the best. Good for them. Turns out you're going to be shocked. It's a 30 to 40 year old male every single time. <laughs> that is the least shocking thing yeah. you could have told me about that. 
So they have a criminal profile. They interview hundreds of witnesses. More than 400 men were eliminated as suspects through blood typing and DNA analysis, which, when did this happen? 1984. I'm assuming that this is a journey. This case, not all of this is taking place in 1984. They must have saved stuff from the you know, original crime scene and from her body um, because DNA profiling was not done in 1984. So more than 400 men were eliminated as suspects through blood typing and DNA analysis over the years. There were at one point 400 men as suspects. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm into it. I like a healthy pool. Well, I bet it was everybody in her high school class and I'm into a healthy pool. Yeah. I Yeah, because the cases where it's like, oh, they zeroed in on one guy and just didn't, didn't look anywhere else. I like when they start with the whole town yeah. and, and move in from there. Seaman yeah. found at the scene was used to develop a DNA profile. Blood found underneath her fingernails matched that DNA profile. So they had this on record, right? But there was no hits on it and nobody they ever tested, ever pinged. The Ozaki County Sheriff's Office had been investigating the case for 34 years. So that's how long it had been cold. In March 2019, investigators decided to focus on forensic genealogy, which I've talked about before. So this team of investigators decide to focus on forensic genealogy, and they seek out assistance from the L.A. FBI Forensic Genetic Genealogy Team. These were the same people who helped identify Joseph James D'Angelo, who's the Golden State Killer. So they reach out. Investigators send the DNA evidence to this private lab. They develop a DNA profile. The DNA profile is uploaded to a genetic genealogy database, which was used to identify family members of the suspect. The closest family member that pinged was a second cousin. That is like a little riddle. Yeah, and this is like, this is something that happens with genealogy websites. When you swab your cheek yeah. or whatever and get, you know, your 23 and Me or whatever it is, this is like a reason why some people won't do that. But then also it's like, well, if you aren't killing anybody, then, you know, the implications of... You have nothing to hide. I mean, the implications of how else they might use that DNA information, I'm not sure what the snowball effect of it is. I don't know. You're going to... We can make some joke about like robots. Six movies ready to. (laughs) Yeah. So they do that, right? And they find a second cousin that is like very, very close to this DNA. For the next step in this process, the investigators needed to build an extensive family tree tracing back four generations. Yeah, my grandma has the same thing on her wall (laughs) in the dining room. Then they identified any male second cousin that would have been between the ages of 16 and 60 in 1984. So doing all of that stuff, right, which is really quite extensive and quite clever, 
This leads the police to identify Philip Cross as a potential suspect in this murder. Get this. Philip Cross died of a drug overdose in 2012. But when he died, the Milwaukee County medical examiner obtained a DNA card for him. I don't know if that's what always happens when you die. If you have a DNA card, they just like rub it all over. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's customary. I don't know. It's the medical examiner. And maybe it was, it had something to do with the state of his death, you know. So several days later, the state crime lab in Madison determined that Cross's DNA profile matched the semen swab, the fingernail clippings obtained during Hammerberg's autopsy. And what's really interesting is that in the scope of this investigation, Philip Cross was not a name known to anybody working the case. And what sucks is that because he died, they don't know if she knew him. They don't know they why. Don't, they can't place like him any idea as to why he might have. Mm-mm. How old was he back then? Recent reports state that Philip Cross and Tracy Hammerberg rode the same bus to school, but he was older than her. Anyway, so what's really weird about this is that, so that happens. They figure out there's some sort of history, but they still, I mean, riding the bus together, you know, I would he have even noticed her? He probably would have been the same age as she is now when he was on the bus, and she would have been... I, well, I shouldn't ponder that because weird things like that happen all the time. But what's really strange, so this is a pretty small town that she was from. And things like that just d- did not happen at the Port Washington High School in Sockville, Wisconsin. So you'll realize how puzzling this was for investigators. So a year after she was killed... Wendy Smith, who was a friend and former classmate of Tracy's, was found dead. So there was a period of time where they thought that there was like some sort of weird serial killer because Tracy's found murdered. Then this other girl's found dead. She was found strangled and sexually assaulted on a hillside across the street from the current Port Washington police station. But that guy was arrested. His name is Thomas Kirsch, and he was arrested and sentenced, charged and sentenced to life in prison. And it was determined when that arrest happened that it was not related to Tracy must have had a hell of an alibi for the first one, right? Because I would guess everybody would be thinking like, well, we definitely got the guy who killed both of them. For sure, yeah. The police chief had declined comment when he was asked if there was any similarities between the deaths. Um, but they figured that one out a lot sooner. I didn't get into that because it, it's like, well, that's not really what I was talking about. But it was strange that this other murder happened and um, it was completely unrelated, so... God, that's got to be terrifying because I would think it'd be about a year of having to everyone in the community having to tell yeah. themselves and each other that this horrible tragedy, once in a lifetime tragedy, like lightning, like struck our town 
and we're all going to move past it and then yeah like how would you like to have been a uh young woman that age because they were 17 and 18 i mean we had had ted bundy but i remember when like milk carton kids were just becoming a thing when i was in in elementary school you know those sorts of cases were being treated differently but you still had the limitations of the technology from the 80s like when we were in the first episode talking about the Menominee Police Department you know it's like you can't really fault those agencies I give a lot of credit to whomever decided to do this genealogy thing it's very clever for such a small place who thought of that there also it makes me think that like if there's anybody I'm worried might go on to kill somebody I should be getting them yeah like 23andMe kits yeah, get or in you, the system now. Or you should at least get in the system. Well, I, I was thinking I got one for my brother for Christmas a while back. So if I go on to kill somebody, have I sealed my own fate? Did he do it? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember any of the details. So I'm like people like us, like just white mutts. Like none yeah. of the numbers are interesting. It's some mix of <laughs> German and Polish and a little bit of Neanderthal. <laughs> Whoa. You know. It's kind of sad that it probably doesn't feel like a real victory because they only found out that it was this guy because he died and happened to get the coroner who keeps the Rolodex of DNA cards. If he hadn't overdosed and didn't commit commit a crime where his DNA was on file, like they wouldn't have caught him. Yeah. He came as close to winning as you can for a person who dies of an overdose. He got away with it, it seems like. Yeah, he got away with it. Yeah. So what do you have for me? I have a story. Um, You're familiar with D.B. Cooper. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar, he was a man who hijacked a plane in 1970. Like, does that sound right? I think it was in the 70s. Hijacked a plane, demanded a ransom of like hundred dollars or $200,000, and... Jumped from the plane with a parachute and has never been seen again. Yeah. It is apparently the only, like, flight crime that's unsolved, like, in history. He had his plan and he succeeded. My story isn't about D.B. Cooper. My story is about a man named Glenn Kurt Tripp. In 1980... Glenn Kurt Tripp is 17 years old, and he attempts a D.B. Cooper gambit of his own. He gets on board Northwest Flight 608, a 727 flying from Seattle to Portland. If you remember D.B. Cooper, the flight he hijacked was from Portland to Seattle. Uh Pretty clear he was following the blueprint. He chose the same airline, the same aircraft, almost the same route. And he even wore the same mirrored sunglasses that D.B. Cooper was shown as wearing in his in the sketch. So he walked onto this plane with a briefcase, and he declared that it contained a bomb. He asked for $100,000 and two parachutes while the 727 was taxiing to the runway. But Glenn Kurt Tripp, <laughs> he makes his demand. The aircraft remains on the ground. The FBI shows up, and they send out negotiators. And while this is all going down, the 17-year-old Glenn is inside talking to the flight attendants. And it, I think it becomes clear that he's 
unbalanced. Then he's, he's a very young man. He's probably like very scared, you know, and he's kind of unloading all this on like the flight attendants and, and what he's doing. <laughs> oh, this is a pro move. <laughs> the cabin crew member spoke to him at length, hearing about how bad his life had been and that nothing had ever gone right for him. So at some point during this conversation, he asked for a drink and she goes to make him a drink and she also crumbles three Valiums into the drink. Shut up. And brings it to him. This actually didn't end the standoff, though. Uh, it would go on. The standoff lasted for 10 hours. Did he not fall asleep when he got the Valiums? doesn't say he fell asleep and they just carried him off the plane. Uh, the standoff lasts for 10 hours. During that time, Tripp would release 52 passengers, and he would make some alterations to his demands. As a reminder, he wanted $100,000 and two parachutes. He eventually lowered his demands and declared that he would settle for three cheeseburgers and a rental car, which he wanted the two pilots to use to drive him out of the airport. So the pilots had to drive him out? He's the one in charge, and he wants to be chauffeured. Three cheeseburgers. Three cheeseburgers and a rental car. Listen, Glenn, can't get you $100,000. That's, you know we can't do that, Glenn. You know we can't do that. If you had started where D.B. Cooper started, now that's where the money was at, but this was going the opposite direction, right? <laughs> that's where he fucked in up. In Portland, that's where the big bucks are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, you have to think after D.B. Cooper, like every airport <laughs> cash register was kept at a $20 maximum or something. Like, buddy, I'm sorry. You were second. You can't be second. Right. Everyone has insurance now. So he says, okay, just give me three cheeseburgers and the pilots drive me out of the airport. That's just embarrassing. The FBI negotiator warned him that the cheeseburgers would take some time, at which point the young man agreed that he'd come out of the aircraft when the rental car arrived, as long as they would give him a head start. So the cheeseburgers also the cheeseburgers uh, came are off the table. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's going to be a wait. You know what? Forget it. Forget it. I'll just take the rental car. So then he, you mean to tell me. I can get you one cheeseburger. No, forget it. I don't want any. I don't want any. My mom gets me three. So you mean to tell me that he wanted a head start? Like he thought that like the pilots were going to outrace then? That it was going to be like a, a vehicle pursuit? I guess. I guess when you, if you've made it this far, you're assuming that your suitcase is going to do a lot of the walking. Yeah. That, oh, because they that don't they're not going to get out of the airport and the pilots aren't just going to stop the car and be like, okay, that's the deal and just because walk they away. <laughs> they still think there's a bomb in there. Yeah. I mean, maybe there is. Hey, maybe there is. As he disembarked the 727, three FBI agents shoved him, grabbing the briefcase and placing him under arrest. See, what Glenn didn't see was that the FBI agents had their fingers crossed behind their back when they said they'd give him a head start. That was his Achilles heel. <laughs> they soon confirmed that there was no bomb, and the boy was arrested. He was convicted of first-degree kidnapping and extortion and sentenced to 20 years on probation. During his trial, he was described as developmentally disabled with a mental age between 9 and 12. He was placed in the Victoria Village home for the developmentally disabled in Washington State. Oh, why didn't you say this at the beginning? 
<laughs> his age, his developmental age. I feel bad. Uh, I wouldn't cement your amount of sympathy for him just yet. Well, also, the story's not over. <laughs> the boys are nine and a half, and they wouldn't do this. <laughs> so anyway, it does. It does sort of explain like. I can guess where he got a hundred thousand, where he got that number. But once he has to off-road, like, oh, of course, the next thing he has for is three cheeseburgers. Yeah. The article goes on. Tripp struggled to find work, and the judge refused to allow him to return to California, where he grew up as one of thirteen children. He reported to his parole officer that someone was trying to kill him, which turned out to be a false report. Then he left the court-approved home to live with an older woman who had been an employee at the home. The judge issued an order to prohibit Tripp from marrying the woman, saying he was too easily influenced by older people. I don't have any more information on... <laughs> on that? What? <laughs> okay. Like somebody was hijacking... His heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what kind of freedom he had. Like, apparently he was working and trying to work out a marriage with, like... This is a weird situation. You know, it, was a, it was a loose. Yeah, uh, I mean, hold I guess. Yeah. You know, I posit that because three years later, January twentieth, nineteen eighty-three, Glenn Tripp boarded a Northwest <sighs> flight in Seattle, bound to Portland. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say he, like, killed the old lady, you know, older lady. And I was like, oh, okay. But instead, he's going to do the same. Okay, go on. As they took off, he declared, now we are going to Afghanistan. (laughs) He then showed a cabin crew member a shoebox, which he had brought on board, and informed her that there was a bomb inside. This time, he did not ask for money or a getaway card, but instead demanded that the aircraft divert to Afghanistan where he said the United States had failed to support, quote, his people against the Soviet Union. He claimed that he had been in prison for the last 10 years and had been unable to see his wife and child there during this time. Um, so what? Glenn grew up in California. He's 20 years old at this point. So he's just manufactured some sort of backstory on himself. Yes. But like at this point, he's not like this was his plan, I guess, like. He didn't open with money. Like, he started with this. Like, right. the the lie that doesn't make sense. So, I don't... I mean, he demands to go to Afghanistan and then thinks that, like, if he hijacks a plane and demands it goes somewhere else, that everyone will be sympathetic to it because he tells this fake story about it. I mean, you still can't do that. Like, it yeah. doesn't matter what um, happens. I'm not a flight engineer either, but if you're going to get on a plane from seattle to portland and say like no now we're going to afghanistan i think you might be misunderstanding yeah. <laughs> the capabilities of the flight here <laughs> right Every, take a left sir we're going to afghanistan <laughs> they don't even have snacks for this kind of flight <laughs> inside the shoebox is a selection of wet towels that i demand be heated <laughs> he agreed to have the 727 land in portland to refuel it lands. FBI agents show up. After over two hours of negotiating, he was convinced to release half of the 41 passengers on board and downgraded his demand from Afghanistan to San Diego. 
I thought you were going to say the cheeseburger thing again. <laughs> the United States has been supporting the Soviet Union against my people, my wife, and my child, who I haven't seen in 10 years. But I'll take San Diego. Also, they must have realized who this was at some point, right? Um, I don't know. And I didn't watch the tape, but at this point, this second time, I think was was bigger news because there was it was carried live on news stations. So he agrees to release half of the passengers as the passengers are sliding down the emergency inflatable slide. Two FBI agents were lifted on the shoulders of their colleagues so they could climb into the aircraft through the cockpit windows. The captain released the security door and one of the agents seeing trip approaching shouted freeze trip. I'm, I'm reading from the article here. Cause I, this is what the FBI agent says happened. Like I, I don't want to say it as if it's objective truth. He shouted freeze trip made a motion as if to throw the shoebox at the agent. The agent fired upon him in self-defense, believing that the lives of the passengers and crew were at risk. If the explosive detonated again, not the important part of the story, but that's a defensive couple of sentences, don't you think? <laughs> the agent fired in self-defense, believing that uh, he was at risk of having a bomb thrown at him, so he reacted in the proper protocols uh, necessary and required to protect the lives of the, those around him as I mean, if the deemed bomb... in the uh, police uh, FBI manual. I mean, if the bomb had already been thrown, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> like... Shooting shooting them at that point isn't going to do anything, right? It's either going to like explode and everyone or somebody might get hurt or not explode. <laughs> also, you're making a lot of assumptions if you think like if he throws that bomb, we're all dead. If I shoot him and he just drops it, we'll probably be fine. Yeah. We'll be okay. <laughs> also, it's like this a 20-year-old developmentally disabled kid with a shoebox. Like, you could probably <laughs> read the writing on the on the fuselage wall. It was only afterwards that it became clear that it was the same hijacker as in 1980 and that he was known to be disabled. There was no bomb. The shoebox was filled with crumpled paper. Did Glenn die? Yes. He was shot and killed. Um, The second article I have here, and I haven't really proofread this, so we'll see how it goes, but this is a series of quotes from passengers who are on that second flight passengers recall bloody end of hijack drama is the title of this um and see this one and a lot of these articles like they don't mention the first time at all like this is the one that was that's really weird because it's the fact that it happened before that makes it a particularly yeah because it also explains cause this one starts a man who tried to hijack a northwest airlines jet said he'd been in prison for 10 years without seeing his family in Afghanistan and, quote, threatened to blow us up a lot of times. <laughs> Before he was killed by an FBI agent, passenger said. Oh, they give one sentence here. He once tried to hijack a plane in 1980. Uh, quote, shortly after takeoff, a gentleman stood up and said, we're going to Afghanistan. He said it in a low voice and no one took him seriously. Said shaken passenger Chuck Goodman, a businessman from Boca Raton. Later, he repeated his demands to flight attendants shortly before the plane began to descend into Portland International Airport around 1.30. This is what, like, my nightmares are like, where you stand up and make a declaration and nothing happens. <laughs> and you're like, I guess I'll sit down. And then the plane starts to descend. And you're like, okay, I guess I have to try again. 
I assume you all heard me the first time, but just in case, I want to make it clear. We are going to Afghanistan. We are going to. <laughs> I've been in prison. My wife and child. During three <laughs> tense hours of negotiations on a remote runway, the hijacker spoke in a foreign accent that sounded fake to some. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. Ordering female passengers and a few children to move up from coach into the empty first class seats. Quote, he was very nervous. I just wanted it to be over, Goodman said. There were some people who took it harder than others. He let us talk. He let us get up and go to the bathroom, but he had moods. Then you get real angry. Uh, and this is a different passenger being quoted. Evidently, for some reason, he had a lot of hatred for Americans, recalled another passenger. Quote, he said we are not helping his people in Afghanistan enough. Did he have any heritage which would suggest that there was any truth to a... What's his full name again? Glenn Kurt Tripp. Okay. It doesn't sound like it, but... Yeah, it's, th it's three white names, like right in a row there. Uh, <laughs> weird quote here from Roy Gronquist, a businessman, said he did not see the agent enter the plane from the cockpit, but he heard the shot. He said the hijacker's head landed near him as he fell. Quote, as he was going down, he said, I give, I give... The last time he said it, he was fading. Just a businessman from Beaverton. <laughs> uh, just <laughs> opining on the last words of a, of a dying man. He said, I'm going to blow up the plane with everybody in it if I don't get some fuel. A lot of us thought he was bluffing, but he was so fanatical at times that none of us wanted to take a chance. But Gronquist had only praise for the way FBI agents and their planes crew handled the situation. Quote, I was glad as heck the way they did it. I wouldn't have done it any other way. No, sir. I think uh, Roy Gronquist here. I think we know what he probably wanted to be when he grew up yeah. <laughs> before he became a businessman. That's what I was would have done, too. I uh, <laughs> had it on a cocktail napkin. <laughs> Passenger said the man first moved all the women and children to the front of the coach section, later put them uh, in first class leaving the men in the coach section. Larson said that when a flight attendant walked down the aisle, the hijacker, quote, said he had been in prison for 10 years and had been behind <laughs> bars and didn't get to see his wife and kid in 10 years. Like, okay, nothing new there. That's like, how it is. <laughs> Just all of these reiterations of that. I didn't see the FBI agents enter through the cockpit. I assumed it was happening because that's, I mean, uh, anybody with even the, the, the most... Anybody Basic tried to get into school for about that ten crisis times. negotiation? <laughs> no, that's that's SOP. I, I don't know what the protocol is. We, of course, are reading this with inside knowledge that this is somebody who had done it before, and then oh my god, he's doing it again. The people on the flight are like, "Well, most of us thought he was bluffing, but we weren't really sure." Sure, I'm not sure how much of that transfers to the FBI agents who are called to do this and, and see somebody with like a box, you know, it feels like they probably didn't need to shoot this person. I don't know how a bomb in a shoebox would like what the manner for detonation would be of such a bomb. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a light <laughs> toss across the cabin of a plane. Like, That's where it activates. Like you take the shoes out. Like, I don't know what sets it off, but it feels like um kind of risky yeah i don't want to make uh 
rash judgments, but if they're negotiating, they probably ha- see him like on the plane. They probably can see this is like a scared, like troubled kid with a shoebox. Like, yeah, we're all jaded now, but I guess if you, <laughs> if it's on the news of a plane hijacked and the FBI saved the day, they're not going to be quoting somebody on the plane that was like, I think they were a little out of line. I wouldn't mind going to San Diego. There's Roy Gronquist from Oregon. That's exactly what I thought he would look like. <laughs> he last updated his stuff in 2014. Looking good, Grandpa. I mean, if I were in that situation, I have to think even if you're like, oh, I think this guy's full of shit. I do imagine that there is a small part of you that's thinking, well, what if he isn't full of shit? That has to yeah. be... You can believe that it's a kid with a fake accent and a fake story and still believe a person that crazy has a real bomb, you know? Yeah, and like how many times, like, this feels like a person that probably should have lived in some sort of assisted living group home type situation. Yeah, and I actually don't mean to shit talk the FBI agents because, like, what else were they going to do? And, like, really got lucky that he did this once and was was yeah. out on probation imagine being the one person on the plane who heard him say we're going to afghanistan the first time when no one else heard it like you were sitting a few rows back and you saw him stand up and go we're going to afghanistan and then just kind of like just like sit back down you'd be like fuck yeah <laughs> oh no i mean What's in and, that shoebox and i don't mean I don't to see like air holes in it <laughs> He probably needed, obviously, a level of care he was not getting. Yeah, it's it's really a shame that his two hijack attempts bookended what was probably a much more interesting story about him falling in love with, like, a caretaker. Yeah. And, like, taking it to the courts. That's a movie I would watch. <laughs> yeah, it feels like um, there's a movie... Like Harold and Maude or something. Obviously not these same circumstances, but like in a while. They drove off the cliff, right? <laughs> hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good one. It's a good one to end on. How long do you think three cheeseburgers would last you? If you got into the rental car. Ten and, minutes. And you're take- <laughs> you're like, you wouldn't be off the tarmac, right? I was thinking. You'd be so hungry after all the like, ten hours of negotiation. I was thinking of like wonderful... Just like big, wonderful bag with three cheeseburgers in it. You would feel like, oh, this has got some heft to it. This is three cheeseburgers in here. Just really has got me thinking about how I would like to go to McDonald's and order three <laughs> cheeseburgers. Yeah. When he was told, sorry, buddy, we can't do three cheeseburgers. And he's like, okay, you know, that makes sense. No, yeah. yeah. No, that, it's that would take, take so long. long. That would take three times as long as like, one cheeseburger. I mean... It's like, and it's such a funny excuse, right? It's like, where were you going to get the, I'm assuming they had fast food restaurants. <laughs> the second time he was such a threat that they, he made a move and they shot him, right? The first time, if he seemed like that much of a threat that time too, don't you think they would have been like, give him three cheeseburgers. We'll or pull him over when he gets onto the street with his rental car. That seems yeah. like a really easy way out of this. Yeah, like, why tell him that he can't have three cheeseburgers? Imagine being a passenger on that plane where he turns around and he's like, they're not giving me the cheeseburgers. Everybody strap in. We're going all night. Like, 
Fuck. Yeah, I'm like, why didn't they just give him the cheeseburger? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Really, it's got me thinking about how I would like to go to McDonald's and order three cheeseburgers. Yeah.